Welcome to the podcast, Selling Real Estate with Kelly Cook, where we will discuss the latest and most relevant business strategies to help you do one thing extremely well, sell more homes. We'll discuss everything from business planning to lead generation and conversion to past client customer service and everything in between. Join us for authentic conversations and nuts and bolts takeaways you can implement into your business today. And now, Selling Real Estate with Kelly Cook. everybody and welcome back. It's another episode of Selling Real Estate with Kelly Cook. As per the usual, we do have Kelly with us. Kelly, you know what I'm going to ask. How is it going today? <laughs> How are you doing, Elizabeth? I'm going to turn it back on you. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I am doing wonderful. Of course I am. Okay, good. And you want to lie, right? Not, never. Okay, no. good. Good, good, good. Because I'm choosing I'm it well. every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing really well because not every day you get to have your sister on a podcast with you. So I got to have my sister and her associate Cassidy as well. So this is really, really cool. And uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Today is selling real estate with uh, the cooks. So yeah. there we go. Yeah. We've got Val <laughs> Cook and Cassidy Sevilla on with us today at um, Cook Commercial Properties. And yeah, we're going to get into kind of a break from the uh, residential and the like single family investment properties, all of that stuff that we're normally um, kind of covering and take a, take a little um, adjacent look at commercial property. So uh, I'm excited for that. Yeah, this is, this is gonna be fun. So uh, we're gonna dive right in. As you guys know, we do our, our style. We're gonna dive in here with some topics that are very relevant to the market right now. And you know, a lot of you guys out there in the residential side know kind of what's going on with the lending space and how the market is just softening probably a little bit. But is that true in the commercial space? We're gonna find that out today and a few other things. And at the very end, of course, you know, we're gonna ask these two wonderful ladies, you know, what are some, um, some, some things that, um, for, for uh, advice that they could uh, give to all of our listeners about what you could do in your business right, uh, right today or this week to implement and have success starting right away. So I'll let them chew on that a little bit, but that's always the, the last question we want to end on. So we're going to jump in here, guys. And, uh, and the, the topic really is the state of the commercial market here with uh, an emphasis really on uh, medical, uh, the medical sector, medical office, and because uh, that's what they specialize in. So if you guys weren't aware, in the commercial real estate world, there's a lot more specialty, right, than residential. So you have in, industrial, you have retail, you have um, office, you have medical, you have all kinds of different stuff, land. Uh, whereas in residential, it's a lot less, right? You have pretty much single family homes. Um, you have some, of course, some condos and things of that nature, townhouses, but a lot more disciplines and specialty in the commercial side. So they specialize in the medical office side. And so we're going to talk about that today. So Val and Cassidy, how are you guys doing? <laughs> doing great. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah. Yes, doing great over here too. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate you guys joining on the, the podcast today. Um, what's unusual, I think, about um, you guys also is the fact that you operate in many, many, many states across the country, right? Whereas even a lot of commercial brokers really only focus on one city or maybe one state. Um, which is just kind of the opposite of what you guys do. So that's very important for our audience to know because potentially there are going to be some referrals there um, in different states across the country, in different markets. So that's really cool, guys. And we'll hit on that today as well. But let's, let's just jump right in. One of the main topics that we hear a lot in commercial real estate side is, you know, capital, right? And having money to fund deals. Um, so guys, either one of you guys is, 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 
is that a myth? Is capital still available in the marketplace for commercial real estate? I can kick that one off. Um, it. It, it absolutely is. You know, I do think we as mostly representing the seller side is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, but we work with buyers as well. But on the seller side of things, you know, we're still seeing compressed cap rates, really aggressive pricing when it comes to medical office properties. And there's still a lot of money out there to be placed, whether it be in 1031 exchanges from private investors um, who may have started this process months ago and are still kind of in the middle of it and have money to place uh, to avoid that tax penalty. Um, or even some of the larger buying groups, such as REITs, public and privately traded REITs, um, the money is still out there. So I think what we're seeing with respect to capital, there is a lot available. It's just how aggressive are people going to get now in placing that capital? Um, so I think the big challenge that we have is coaching our sellers to understand that, yes, this is a seller's market. There are still uh, very aggressive prices out there. But the buyers now are going, well, wait a minute, it's costing me a lot more money to get debt now. So because of that, I can't pay as aggressively as I may have been able to six months ago. So there's still that gap a little bit between, you know, what buyer's expectations are and seller's expectations are. Um, and then our job is obviously to broker that and try to get them to meet somewhere where everybody's happy. Um, but outside of that, we're seeing a lot of activity and a lot of money out there. Cass, do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, I do. You know, I think, um, Val, and you might have been experiencing this too, is while there's still a lot of capital that's out there that's being placed, like Val mentioned, the cost of debt is escalating. So we're seeing that have an impact on returns. So while buyers may have this capital to place, it's not just, do they have it, but can they place it? Can they make that return? Can they get the financing terms that they're looking for? And so we're starting to see it soften just a little bit, but it's still very active market. You know, I think over the last six weeks, they've seen the biggest change where some of those larger REITs, mid-sized groups are starting to pull back a little bit, stand on the sidelines. They're still active. They're just not as aggressive as they were two months ago. So that's kind of been my experience with it. Um, but yeah, there's definitely still a lot of capital out there to be placed. And the deals, are, the deals are moving quickly too. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cass, I know we, we've been working on a couple where the buyers have been like, look, if this LOI is not accepted in two days, our offer price might be different. Like that's how yeah. quickly our, our market is changing right now. So our job as brokers become even more important, making sure we're staying on top of things, both on the buyer side and the seller side. Absolutely. So why, why is that? Is it because there's, there's still plenty of inventory to choose from as a buyer and they are, they're, they're, it's smart money, right? So they're well smarter than residential, generally speaking. So they're looking to just move on and, and they understand when the market's kind of going. So they want to just jump on and jump on this and be as aggressive as possible. I think that's part of it. I think, you know, some of these larger REITs, they, if they're publicly traded, they have certain returns that they have to answer to their investors too. So they're always purchasing based on what the expected rate of return is going to be for their investors. You know, I think Cassidy mentioned, it's like, well, if, if I can't get an X return, you know, if it's going to cost me, if a cap rate is 525 on a medical building, in essence, their rate of return on their cash is 5.25%, but the interest rate that they're able to get is 5.45. That's, 
that doesn't really make sense for them. So that's where things change. When interest rates were around three and a half or three and a quarter, then you know getting a 5.25% return on your money is doable. But when the rate becomes higher than what the return rate is on the property, that's when we run into problems. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and guys, I hope that you picked up on some, uh, some parallels there because we're seeing that on the residential side starting to occur as well. Maybe not as quick um, or as fast, but it's starting to happen where some buyers are now, instead of getting seven offers and your 25K, 30, 35K over the asking, now you might be lucky to get one offer at asking price, right? In that first week or weekend. So it's, it's, it's starting to happen uh, across the board uh, for, I think, both, both uh, running parallel side by side, right? To, to an extent. Um, so let me, let's pivot to the next question. Um, who are the buyers in the marketplace? Well, I'll go ahead and take that question. And I, so I think that, you know, there's, there's several different groups of buyers. Uh, most, the, the top buyer that we see, the most aggressive buyers are the REITs, obviously. Um, those fall down into two different categories. You have your value add buyer um, groups that are REITs, and then you have your core and fully stabilized groups. I know we'll touch on those a little bit more in detail, but they're really looking at price points of 20 million and above. Mm. Um, then you have your private investors. Those are your 1031 buyers. They're in an exchange. Um, they're switching property types or just due to the current state of the stock market, they're turning real, to real estate for a more stable investment. And those are really going to range from about a million to 10 million price points. Um, and then most more commonly, we're starting to see um, a different type of buyer group, family houses, where there's family money that's being pulled together, it's coming together, it's building and creating these portfolios. They tend to be a little bit more aggressive than private, um, just those smaller private investors, but not as competitive as a REIT, obviously. Um, but their, and their capital and their price points are usually fall somewhere between 5 million and 20 million. I don't know, Val, um, what, what do you think in terms of buyers? Are there any other buyers you can think of? You know, I think, I think that covers a, a wide range. You know, the nice thing about today's market is that we do have all of those buyer types in play. Yeah. You know, when during COVID, um, we found, it seemed that we found that some of the, it, it was more of the larger groups because they had this massive amounts of capital. They're willing to take more risk as opposed to a private investor who kind of sat on the sideline during COVID and was like, I don't know what I want to do right now. So as the market factors change, um, buyer groups will enter and exit the market um, in different, at different rates. So the nice thing is, is that there does seem to be a really nice mix of buyer types out there, which is great because if you are a property owner and let's say your property is 20 years old, but it generates good income, there's just as much interest, if not more now for your property than there may be for a surgery center built two years ago. Yeah. So it just depends on, you know, who the buyer is, but the nice thing is that a lot of property types are attractive because of the way the market's fluctuating. You have people who are willing to take a little bit more risk, looking for a little bit better return. Um, and then those still looking for the core, really fully stabilized value, you know, um, 100% occupied assets also. That's interesting. How about um, uh, buyers that are typically multifamily uh, buyers that are getting, I mean, the cap rates are so low now uh, in most places across the country that they're migrating over to medical office or office, maybe? 
Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I think with multifamily, that's one of the probably top property types we're hearing about as far as just a lack of quality inventory. And, um, you know, medical was probably in that position a little bit more, maybe six to eight months ago. Um, I think once owners started seeing the type of prices that they could get in the medical space, a lot more properties have hit the market since. But multifamily, um, we're definitely seeing that, you know, especially in the good geographic areas, the lack of inventory is just driving all the prices up and it's um, causing buyers to look elsewhere. And so, yes, medical office has been a great option. Um, you know, I'll add to the point that you made earlier and we're unique in that we work all over the country. That's also a nice thing when it comes to an investor standpoint, we work with triple net leases most of the time. So, you know, you can open up your options as an investor a lot more uh, because it's a hands-off investment as opposed to sometimes in the multifamily world, you sometimes have to be, especially if you're newer into that property type as an investor, you need to be able to be a little bit more hands-on or have connections with management companies across the country, which can be tricky. Um, as opposed to the medical space where it's a much more hands-off investment. And so you're able to open up your parameters a little bit more from the investment standpoint. How, how's the leasing market in the medical office space, right? Because I got to imagine that the only, the big difference and why a lot of people choose to go in the apartment multifamily side is because everyone has to have a place to live, right? So like the chances are that you're going to have some cash flow coming in at all times is, is very, very high, right? Um, but obviously in the medical side, you know, there's a, a litany of different, you know, you can have multiple tenants in a building or maybe a single tenant, but, um, you know, if that, that 10 year lease is up or what, what have you, um, is that the big uh, reason? That's the first question. Big reason why maybe a lot of people don't invest in say medical office as opposed to multifamily. And if so, how's the rental market for the medical, you know, office side right now in terms of how fast, you know, or, or how long buildings maybe sit vacant? Yeah, I think too, um, just to kind of throw something in, in that point is that I think there's a lack of, maybe a lack of knowledge of the types of medical office properties that are available. And that's why when you're investing into a medical property, you know, there's so many different factors that investors going to look, look at in terms of how secure this investment is. Um, who's the tenant on the lease structures? Is it an investment grade tenant? Um, are they local? Are they regional based? Um, is it a specialty build out? Uh, we do a lot of dialysis, very secure investments. The tenant themselves at least invest at least a million dollars into their build outs alone. Mm. So that adds value to um, an owner's property just right off the bat. But I think- So, so to be clear, Cassie, the tenant, you said the tenant pays that yep. money, right? Yeah. Oh boy. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a lot of, yeah, and on the dialysis side, it's, you know, their build outs are so expensive because of the plumbing of the structure that has to go into place. But mm. there's other specialty clinics or specialty properties, um, surgery centers, dental offices, veterinarians, you know, um, all of those types of spaces. So I think those are all factors that you can, that one can consider. And usually within the medical space, depending on the type of tenant that's in place, most of them pay um, usually a little bit over market rents. Um, within that lease structure. So. Got it. Yeah. And I, I would say too, as far as the necessity, you know, medical mimics multifamily somewhat in the sense that people need a place to live. People will always need to physically go see a doctor. So, yeah. you know, during COVID, obviously telehealth became very prominent. 
Um, a lot of medical specialties um, took on telehealth and added that to their practice. But quite honestly, right now, I mean, it's not the direction where everyone's going. People want to see their physician in person. Yes. Um, it's just a better connection. And so with the aging demographics of our country, um, depending on the market you're in, I think medical office, um, as far as from a leasing perspective, you know, it depends on what market you're in. If you're down in Florida or Scottsdale, Phoenix area, where, you know, you may have a snowbird population or a higher aging population, um, the lease times can be anywhere from three to six months to lease up an office, a medical office space. In much more rural areas, a lot of times we'll see 12 to 24 months. Um, but that's why as an investor, I think the important thing is you know, really looking at, as Cassidy mentioned, the commitment of the tenant to that space. You know, if they've invested a lot of their own dollars into that space, the chance of them up and moving is going to be much lower than, you know, in a standard, let's say, retailer office tenant. Um, so how much money in the medical side, there's certificate of needs required for certain states based on the specialty, which involves a higher level of government regulation, which again, hinders people from just moving from space to space. So there is a lot of security in medical office if you know what to look for uh, based on the piece of real estate you're looking at. Which is where you guys come into play, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, real quick, are there, are there things to do? You have a 10-year lease. You bought it with seven years left. Seven years are now come and gone and, or, or it's about to come and go. And you know, there's a year left on the lease. Um, are there things that you can do um, uh, with that lease to try to shop the property uh, to any new prospective tenants if, let's say, the current tenant is going to get notice to leave? And how early is that, that notice typically given so you have the heads up? So we actually are going to be doing a, a free uh, webinar as a team. Uh, I believe it's June 22nd. Okay. And if any of your listeners would like the link to join that, um, have them reach out to you and we'll be sure that they get that link. But the topic is how to maintain or even grow the value of your commercial investment real estate over the ownership period. Mm. And so I think that we'll have some good points for people on there. You know, as you mentioned, if you know, really as an owner, understanding the lease is the number one thing you can do. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised how many people we talk to that own multi-million dollar buildings and they think they have a different lease than what they actually have in place. And so the value that we bring to the table by developing a relationship with a commercial professional who understands these leases, who has read many of them, such as we have, um, we're able to kind of pinpoint some things that owners may not be aware of, potential um, expenses coming up that they may have to shell out, whether it be for the HVAC or the parking lot or whatever it may be. Um, getting a new tenant in involves leasing commissions and tenants. Uh-oh, technical difficulties. <laughs> Technology. Yeah. Oh, as we're talking oh. about telehealth. Oh. oh, She's back. She's back. <laughs> Yay. Sorry. I don't know. Um, Chicago's tricky these days. Um, <laughs> so where I was leaving off was this might be a good webinar for people to, to listen into because I think we'll provide some good insight. But from a leasing perspective, yes, understanding your lease and communicating with your tenant have that open line of communication because 
if they feel comfortable letting you know that they're leaving at the end of their lease, and let's say there's 12 months left, you want them to tell you that and not be ashamed to tell you that. That way you can better prepare the property and your, you know, your own expectations for the next tenant and hopefully right. minimize the gap of not having any income coming in. And you're gonna, you can obviously, when you underwrite the deal before you're ready to buy, obviously you're gonna put in some sort of vacancy factor, right? So that, that's, that's kind of built in to expect that when the lease may come up in the future, right? So, you know, it depends that honestly, it does depend on the property type. A lot of single tenant, longer term leases, people won't underwrite any vacancy mm -hmm. in that. You know, usually if there's about five years or more on the lease, mm. what we see more in those situations is just a reserve, uh, either like a small dollar amount per square foot um, or things like that. You will absolutely see vacancy factors underwritten anytime you have a multi-tenant property with more than yeah. one tenant. And that's how we underwrite it too. If we're underwriting it for an owner, if there's more than one tenant, regardless of whether it's fully occupied or not, we will underwrite a vacancy factor. If the, sh the lease terms are short, that vacancy factor is going to be higher mm. than if you had a fully occupied building with 10-year leases. Then we'll try to do anywhere between 3 and 5%, depending on the market. Okay, got you. Now, question. If um, you're, you're an individual out there, or, uh, or you know of uh, someone watching this today knows of an individual that is an investor by nature, right? And has some money, uh, capital to place, et cetera. But, you know, certainly they've always done single family houses and, and condos, et cetera. Why, what, what's keeping them, do you think, from jumping in and taking that same million dollars and buying a medical office space uh, as opposed to buying a VRBO uh, luxury rental or, you know, some sort of, or two single family homes or something like that, right? What, why, what, what's your sales pitch here, Cassidy, to um, convince them to say, you should absolutely look at commercial and don't just like think it's for the, the big REITs out there and, and institutional people? Oh, the pressure's on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Is I think that there's a lot of individuals that um, traditionally have believed that commercial space um, is for the larger REITs. And we're starting to see those private have a that they're a bigger player in the game than one would expect um additionally something that i come across often is you know investors really like to keep their some of them that invest into residential um, like to keep their uh, or multifamily rbos they like to keep their investments kind of close to them they feel a little bit more secure because those tend to be right. more hands-on if you need to be well open your mind a little bit and start looking at those triple net lease structures that are these hands-off investments where you have a secure investment with a really strong tenant investment grade uh, maybe it's in a, a completely different state on the op opposite side of the country but you're going to get you know just as good of return if not better with a longer tenant that's going to stay in place. Now you maybe you have 10 years on the lease. So for sure you have this income coming in for 10 years. They maybe have three five-year options to renew. They've invested a ton of capital into the property and it's completely hands-off. Maybe the only thing you're responsible for is a roof replacement um, you know, 15 years from now, um, or if anything structural is wrong with the property. So I think um just that is that these are available to you know you can take a million dollars and invest it into a really good commercial property you don't need 10 million dollars to do it that's good I, Val. yeah i would just add a couple of things to that those are all really good points you know i think people 
people stay where they're comfortable, right? And just like anything in life, if they're comfortable with a single family home, because they understand that everyone lives in a home of some sort, um, that can keep people in their little bubble, right? Um, so, you know, kind of being able to step outside your comfort zone a little bit and like Cassidy said, see what your options are. But the most important thing is to work with a professional, you know, yes. whether it be residential, commercial is the same way. You know, like you mentioned earlier, it's a lot more specialized. So we specialize in net leases with a focus in the medical sector. But if you are, you know, have a passion on industrial buildings, work with an industrial professional, commercial professional. They will help you avoid a lot of the pitfalls that maybe a new investor might fall into. And they'll also give you tips and give you strong guidance on the types of properties you should be looking at based on your objective. You know, we all meet with a, with a financial advisor from time to time, I'm sure, you know, whether it's a 401k, what are they asking us? What are your objectives? What's your five-year objectives, your 10-year objectives? And all of that factors into what you should have in your portfolio. You know, and also that leads me into the other um, topic is diversify. Right. If, if we've learned nothing over the last 10 years, um, you know, don't keep everything in one you know, sector. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a lot of properties in the commercial space that are secure and that can provide you a, a better return than maybe some of these other investments that you're more comfortable with. So it's all education, working with a professional and, you know, diversifying your portfolio. Yeah, I love that. I, I think, um, you know, the reality is I, I own single family homes, rental, <laughs> rental houses, and they're, they're like 15 minutes away. And I haven't seen some of them for like four years. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't want to, right? I don't, I don't, you know, so like if it's in Florida or Texas or Tennessee, or, what does it matter, right? I mean, you can get a flight and be there in two or three hours. So that's a, that's a really good point. I think it's a really good point that people should really, really consider. I'm actually considering that myself too. So that's, that's really good. So I guess the uh, last question here too, to ask, keep, keep in mind with investment real estate, you have the 1031 yeah. still available. So, you know, you can, some people think, well, I only own single family investment homes. I can't buy, I can't sell one of those and buy a gas station. You can. So mm -hmm. the 1031 code allows you, as long as it's another piece of investment real estate and that's classified, it could be land. It could be a single family home. It could be a medical building. Um, you can take advantage of those tax savings and diversify your portfolio that way. Um, and then actually realize some of the returns that you actually might have. You know, if the re residential market's really good, take advantage, sell when it's high and put that money into something else and avoid the taxes and just work your return that way. Um, yeah, I love, I love that. And if you want to get some money out tax-free, you always can by doing a cash out refi, even in the commercial yeah. financing world as well. Yeah. And, then, and then if you really want to avoid paying taxes, you keep that triple net property, commercial property until you pass away. It goes to your heirs and up to a certain dollar amount. I think it's $11 million right now. There's a step up uh, uh, cost basis to that to your heirs that they don't owe taxes on either if they choose to sell it when you die. That's the power of knowing the tax code. Yeah. But I'll stop right there. I could keep going. That's good stuff. <laughs> um, so guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much uh, for all the, uh, the knowledge here. So I want to leave the, uh, the listeners here with, uh, that question I asked at the beginning, 
that there's one thing, although most of these people um, listening um, are most likely in residential, but there's one thing you could just, you know, a piece of advice you can give them that they could potentially um, implement in their business in the next day or week, like fairly soon. What would that be? I think um, if you are considering investing into real estate, the most important thing that you can do is reach out to a, a professional in the commercial space, whether that be me or Val or somebody else, just talk to us, get on the phone with us, talk to us about what you're kind of thinking and let us give you some pointers and help guide you or put you in touch with the right resources that you need, because they think it's a lot more achievable than many people think. So love that. Love that. Um, I think my piece of advice would be take a moment, sit down and get very clear on what your objectives are. Um, because I think with anything, whether it's a goal in life that you have personal or professional, um, you know, if you're trying to build wealth for your kids down the road, if you're looking to retire in five years, depending on what your objective is, that's going to determine how and where you should be investing your money right now. Mm. So yeah. I think, you know, when people aren't clear, that's when their options are this big, you know, and it becomes really tricky. So okay. my piece of advice, be very clear on what's your five year, what's your 10 year, maybe even what's your one year. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> um, but, but it really makes a difference, you know, and as soon as you have that, then you can talk to the right people, like Cassidy said, and have professionals direct you so that you're achieving what you want to achieve. Love it. Like you said, it's the paradox of choice, right? A confused mind will not buy. So you don't give them 75 options. You give them two or three, right? And and let them choose. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. I I, I love this. Um, I love talking shop as Elizabeth knows, Um, but especially- (laughs) You he know, loves with, inve- uh, talking about investing and, and all of that. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, definitely want to get involved in the, on the commercial side here soon. So uh, that's definitely going to happen. So I uh, really appreciate it, guys. Um, hope you guys got some good nuggets out of this. Um, Elizabeth, yeah. take us away here. Yeah, I love that. That was wonderful. It's a nice break from kind of our typical, like I said, talking about residential um, investing because there's there's so many other options. So thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. If anybody has any questions or um, you know wants to uh, go to your webinar, anything like that, where could they reach out to you directly? Sure. So you can visit our website, which is cookcommercialpartnersplural.com. Um, there's um, a contact us button on the website. So you can send us a quick message and one of us will be in touch with you. Um, or you can email um, at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E dot cook, C-O-O-K at kw.com. And we'll make sure based on you know where you're at that you get in touch with the right person on our team who can help you. Perfect. And Kelly, if anybody has any questions, any, uh, um, you know, topic suggestions, they just want to talk shop, where can they reach you? Oh, I love it. You can text me guys. Go ahead. Some of you guys have taken advantage of that, which is awesome. But 480-227-2028 on my cell info at kellycookhomes.com is a good email as well. And then, you know, it wouldn't be the podcast if I didn't uh, end up saying this, but if you are looking to build your real estate team in any capacity, uh, please make sure to go to buildyourrealestateteam.com and get Kelly's uh, module there. He wrote it all out for you. He did it. He made the mistakes so that you don't have to. Well <laughs> yes. <said. laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks, you guys, for coming on, and we will see you all next week.
Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. See ya. Welcome to the podcast, Selling Real Estate with Kelly Cook, where we will discuss the latest and most relevant business strategies to help you do one thing extremely well, sell more homes. We'll discuss everything from business planning to lead generation and conversion to past client customer service and everything in between. Join us for authentic conversations and nuts and bolts takeaways you can implement into your business today. And now, Selling Real Estate with Kelly Cook.